Almighty God, today we come to you with open hearts, open minds. We recognize, Lord, that sometimes our worship is lifeless and that doesn't always depend on how good the music or the preaching is. Sometimes it just depends on the condition of our hearts when we arrive. Sometimes we come with many burdens and then we forget to leave them with you. Sometimes we forget that the altar is always at the forefront of our worship to remind us that the secret to joy and everlasting peace is embodied in the altar. It reminds us, Lord, that your love for us made manifest in Jesus becomes the sacrifice that ends the sacrificial system. Now all we have to do is repent of our sin and trust that Christ's sacrifice at the altar of your mercy seat has given us all that we need to be right with you and to enjoy your company and to be a member of your household. So through Christ, Lord, we accept our forgiveness. Through Christ, we seek a new life through the Holy Spirit and we embrace that new life by letting go of the old things and focusing on what is ahead, keeping our eye on the Lord Jesus as the beautiful prize that we seek to be like him in every way. And so, Lord, today as a family of faith, we put on that altar symbolically those things that burden us, that have weighed us down, the unforgiveness, the hurt, the sickness in our bodies and minds and spirits, injury in body, mind, and spirit. We put our fears for the future, Lord. We put our anxiety about work and family, government, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines. We put all of that on the altar, Lord knowing that you foretold these things not so that we would be frightened, but so that we would be prepared and know that you have it all in hand. Oh, Lord, let us put our faith in you as we put our cares upon the altar. Oh, God, hear us then, especially as we pray for those needs that we are aware of, whether in our mind or on that prayer list or in some way that we've communicated our willingness to pray for one another, Lord, this is where we come with it, Lord, to give it to you. I pray for Pastor Tim, especially, and all those like him who are suffering in body. Pray for strength for their family, for their church. And Lord, finally, as I lead this prayer I find that there's great comfort in being able to speak the words Jesus taught us. And so together we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, 
but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Today's scripture reading really picks up where we left off last week, so if you want to join me in reading along, I turn to the Gospel of John. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I, do not, if I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the helper comes, whom I will send, I'm just reading a little extra here, to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I'm kind of glad I threw that in, because it's the answer to how we do all of this. Get the Holy Spirit working with you. So last week we talked about the importance of staying closely connected to Jesus as a branch that grows out of the vine and understanding that he gets his life fulfilling spirit and nature from the Father. And it is the way of communicating the Father's will is through Jesus to us as the vine and the branches. We understand then that God the Father is the source of all light and truth, and that the Son has opened, us, opened the way for us to experience all that light and truth, that we were separated from that, that we were part of the darkness until Christ opened the way for us and covered our sin through his sacrificial offering, and therefore made it possible for us to endure the light of God's incredible presence. So today we're going to talk about what is essentially the biggest barrier to living in the light and living that new life in Christ and becoming like him in every conceivable way as we grow in personal sanctification. Again, that spiritual maturity where our nature eventually gives way to the nature within through the Holy Spirit that is for us to be more like Christ than like the world we live in. In this week's reading, we understand that being a friend with Jesus comes with a cost. He makes no wiggle room available to you. He says, if you love me, then the world will hate you in the same way it hates me. He makes that plainly clear for us. He actually goes on to say that 
there will be even greater works that come from us if we will love him at all costs. So that's very encouraging. And I imagine that the apostles figured, especially after the resurrection of Jesus, that there would be more than sufficient evidence that everything they were saying was true and that would end any persecution. I mean, they still held on to the idea, I think, after the resurrection, that they were going to set up this mountaintop place of glory where God would dwell in Christ and he would rule the world and people would come and they would sit around him as, as his uh, sort of executive board or cabinet or or uh, his, his various uh, elders. And it took him a long time to understand that Jesus has a different plan and that this plan will involve suffering, that this plan will involve the transformation of all creation, in particular the human creation, but it comes at a cost. There is, in effect, a picture of the refiner's fire. This isn't in the notes, but it occurs to me that uh, one of my favorite hymns uh, has a line that says that the only reason the fire increases is so that the dross can be removed. And what that means is, is that when you're trying to purify a precious metal, you have to increase the heat because it separates that which is precious from that which is not part of the precious metal. In other words, the minerals that are collected around the gold have to be separated from the gold in order to make the gold more pure. And so these minerals will come to the surface and then the, the person doing the boiling or the cooking of the, of the minerals will scrape off the top or the waste, which is called dross. And so what Jesus is describing is a friendship that involves, involves a constant process of refinement and a constant process of having our dross or our waste components removed, those human nature things that make us more like the world we're in than the Christ within us. So the reality that Christ is making clear to us in this passage is, is that the world will hate you because it hated him first. And one of the ways you'll know you're on the right track is because the world hates you. <laughs> so the next time you're persecuted for being a Christian, say, Woohoo! I must be doing something right. Is that how it goes? Not really. But let's see what we can make sense of here. We can't endure that hostility when we're rooted in this truth, though. We can understand why people mistreat us for being really devoted to Christ. But as we go a little further here, I think you're going to be surprised to find out that there's a lot more subtle persecution going on even now than you might realize, and that there may be a lot more required of you than you might realize. Because Jesus makes it clear that the world will hate you because it hates him. Now, as I read this passage, I was remembering this uh, theme song from uh, this old TV show called Monk. It was sung by Randy Newman. Courtney, you probably love Randy Newman. Yeah, Randy Newman's songs are a riot. He's the guy that sings the songs on the, the Toy Story movies. Well, in the theme song from, from uh, Monk, he says, it's a jungle out there, disorder and confusion everywhere. 
and no one seems to care. Well, I do, is the opening line of the song. And then it goes on to describe all the various things that Monk is afraid of. But, but it is a jungle out there. There is disorder and confusion everywhere. It's, it's not one world. And, and, you know, the rest of the world isn't that much like Shiloh or Jasper or southern Indiana. The rest of the world is very different. And there's a variety of, of ideas of normal out there. And that's an understatement. And sometimes, even in a church family as loving as this one, it's a jungle. Because when we commit ourselves to wholehearted obedience to Christ and to this desire for transformation in our nature so that we are no longer of this world, but we're in this world, becoming more like Christ every day, there is a jungle out there that's ready to consume you, ready, ready to punish you for your lack of generalized nonconformity. It's really bizarre, but it, it reminds me of another thing that I get from TV. There's a show that I, I'm ashamed to admit that I really enjoy. It's a, it's a show about improvisational comedy called Whose Line Is It Anyway? Now, if you know me, you can probably understand why I can't help watching that show. But there's a, there's a little saying they use every time they open the show. Every time the host introduces the program, she always says, this is a game where everything's made up and the points don't matter. And what I've realized is, is that that's the jungle we're living in right now as Christians. We're living in a world where everything's made up and the points don't matter. We're living in a world where there are no absolutes as far as general society is concerned and, and therefore you can't say someone else is wrong or that you're sure you're right about anything because what is right and wrong and, and it, you know, I mean, it goes back, Pontius Pilate even said that to Jesus, right? He said, what is truth, right? Well, there are absolute truths and we've, we've chosen to embrace the truth that is Christ Jesus. And so, being Christians in a world where everything's made up and the points don't matter immediately puts you at odds with other people. You see how that works? And yet Jesus doesn't give you any wiggle room. He doesn't allow you to compromise. He says, the world hates you because it hated me first. And you know, I really tried to find a way out of that word hatred when I was studying today for today's message. I, I, did, I did all the deep dive things that pastors are supposed to know how to do. And you know what I found out when he says hate? He means hate. There's no translating it back to, well, they won't like this about you, they won't like. He says, if the world hates you, it hates you because it hates me. And what he's implying, not so indirectly, is, is because you love him, the world hates you. There's no wiggle room in there. The words that he's using don't leave you with any other option. If you're devoted to him, the world's going to hate you. And he uses the word hate, and he means hate. And there is no confusion about that one goes all the way back to the earliest translations, this is what he meant when he said it. So, then you have to ask yourself, well, if this is what he meant, then, then, then how are we supposed to interpret that? Because 
What do you think would happen if you went out on the streets of Jasper or down in Evansville or Louisville or Indy or someplace like that and you just started asking random people, do you hate Jesus? What do you think they would say? No, I don't hate Jesus. Some of them might say, I, I think he might be a really great guy. I've heard lots of good things about him. I think these days an awful lot of people would say, I don't hate him. I, I don't know him. How can I hate someone I don't know? And if you ask people, do you love Satan? Are you all in for Satan? What do you think they would say? No, I, I don't love Satan. I don't love evil. I'm, I'm not all for worshiping the devil. So the fact is, most of the people out there that you meet are basically good people who are ambiguous about these things. And this really brings us back to a dangerous observation. To what extent is it a jungle in here? To what extent are we living with ambiguity about Jesus and Satan in our own congregation, in our own family of faith, in our own household? Jesus doesn't leave you any wiggle room. He says if the world hates him, then it's going to hate you because you love him. And so as painful as it is for us to hear, we have to move towards the thing that Jesus said about the ones who had known him. He said that if they had never known him and never seen the things he did that no one else did, they'd have an excuse. But because they know him and have seen what he's done, they don't have an excuse. Who are the they that we're talking about? I think I'm one of them. I know him. I believe he did those things that only he could do and continues to live in the presence of God and is present with us in the Holy Spirit. And I believe all of that. Therefore, I'm not left with any excuses. So what about you? There are an awful lot of people, if you ask them if they're Christian, they'll say yes. But if you ask them if they're basically ambiguous about Jesus and Satan, well, you'd have to do a little more digging, but I think you would find out that most of them are. That church provides a variety of resources that are of value to them. That the religious community provides them with a certain social uh, structure that's valuable to them. But when it comes to obe obedience, you know, to really serving Christ to the extent that the world hates you because it hated him first, that becomes a process of refinement in and of itself. And Jesus makes it clear that there's going to come a day when the ambiguity, that is the lack of clarity about who he is in your own thought the lack of commitment to him in your own heart may cause him to say, I'm sorry, I don't know you. He doesn't leave us any wiggle room. This is hard to hear, I know. Thankfully, God's grace is bigger than anything I could stand here and describe if I had all day to tell it to you. 
And so one thing we're con comfortable in knowing is, is that we will continue to be made better if we will make ourselves able by being willing. In other words, yes, Jesus, I have been somewhat ambiguous, ambiguous about you. I have been somewhat unwilling to go all in with you, but I want to. There's a saying from scripture that says, Lord, please help me in my unbelief. And so it's a statement of faith that God will help you grow your faith. You can ask God to increase your faith. You can say, Lord, I have a hard time believing, but I want to believe, help me to believe more. You can say that and the Lord will respond favorably. If you ask the Lord to increase your faith, you should expect discomfort in the process. You should expect to recognize this transformational process in your life. And it doesn't mean that in the midst of your pain, you're, you're particularly alert to it, but, but in a moment of respite, you're gonna look back and say, oh my gosh, this was the cost for praying that prayer, and I'm sure glad I prayed that prayer. So let's talk for a minute about the hatred of the world and what it really means. If you're committed then to becoming refined in Christ and being more like Christ every day, even if it means the world will hate you, then what's that going to look like? For the sake of obedience to Christ, we'll put you at odds with others because, because most of us like a comfortable religion. Because most of us like a religion that makes us feel good, not a religion that makes us feel bad. Most of us want to hear sermons that make us laugh and think, but not sermons that make us feel bad. And so if this is painful for you, then understand that this doesn't make you the world or make you wrong or bad or anything else. But what it is, I hope, is a challenge to all of us to recognize the worldliness in us and to seek holiness, to, to, to really earnestly and intentionally move towards personal holiness. I've certainly not arrived at any particularly significant destination in that journey myself, but I can tell you that if you'd known me 25 or 30 years ago, you would say, you've come a long way, baby. I can assure you that I have been refined and improved in the grace of God over time. And the man you know now, if you find any favorable observations, credit the Holy Spirit's constant refining process. And if I get credit for anything, it's simply that I won't stop seeking personal holiness, that I desire it. In fact, I think I crave it now because you know, once you've really developed a taste for something good, you have a tendency to want it wherever you can get it. But, it is an acquired taste, and that means that if you want this change in your nature from worldliness to godliness, from being a great person in the sight of your worldly friends to being a great person in the sight of your Lord Jesus Christ, 
the first few times you really venture out in that direction, it will be a challenge for you to acquire a taste for it. But at some point, you'll desire that more than you desire the approval of your friends and your coworkers. And they will mock you and make fun of you, and most of it's good-natured and not particularly hurtful, but in time, it will become hurtful. There are times when you are put in the crucible and you have to either decide to back out or let the hammer fly and have you forged into something stronger and more effective in the world that Christ uses you. Now, that probably didn't make much sense, but the fact is people are going to, they're, they're going to challenge your truth. And some of them are going to be people that have authority over you in some way or another, or people with the religious authority in particular, who might have the ability to argue what, what truth is and isn't. And, and at the end of the day, if you're living in the Holy Spirit, you're going to know, I promise you, you're going to know with absolute certainty that this is where you should stand, whatever the cost. Martin Luther made a speech at the Diet of Worms where he basically said, this is where I stand, and if you kill me, then you kill me. And because of his courage, we had a reformation that we're still seeing lived out to this day. Sometimes you just know that this is where you stand, and it means that you will be forever at odds with people you once had peace with in some form or another. The world will hate you because it hated him first. Dale Martin Stone wrote this little poem about the shaping of a disciple. Please hear it and recognize that when he wrote these words, man was the way we referred to humanity. So it's not sexist. It's just of old language. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to build so great and bold a man, that all the world shall be amazed, then watch God's methods, watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him, making shapes and forms which only God himself can understand, even while his man is crying, lifting a beseeching hand. Yet God bends but never breaks. When man's good, he undertakes. When he uses whom he chooses, and with every purpose fuses man to act and act to man as it was when he began. When God tries his splendor out, man will know what he's about. Be careful what you pray for, but once you develop a taste for it, pray for it all the more. Let us pray. God, please take these jumbled thoughts and words and turn them into truth for your people. Please burn upon their hearts only which, that which comes from you. And Lord, whatever observations I make are not meant to celebrate my witness or my discipline, only that I understand what you're asking of us, Lord. And I invite us all to be that bold, that courageous every day, and to see your glory in it. Amen.